Thank you, Alison, for reading that to us. Um, Let's pray before we um, look into that passage. Father, I pray that uh, through your word this morning, that for each one of us here there will be something. There will be uh, your voice saying, this is what I have for you. This is what I want you to understand today and how I want you to change or what I want you to do. Father, open our hearts and make us receptive in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Barry. Um, I think I actually did say that two weeks ago. Um, whatever John said, I said. I never argue with him. Um, wasn't quite making that point, but I did probably say something similar. Uh, thanks for the feedback on that sermon. I got quite a bit of it. It was quite an interesting one. That was about another part of um, Luke 12, which we're still in. Uh, that one was about the rich fool. This one is about this kaleidoscope of images concerning servanthood and readiness and, and all sorts of things. Um, a very challenging set of statements that Jesus gives us. Hence Peter's question, who are you talking to? Because he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying either. Um, have a look at this picture. Polly, I wonder if you can put the, that one up. Um, now, you may not be able to see it very clearly, but you'll see, um, you can see a, um, a cylinder and a block with some squares on it. And can you see the letters A and B? Can you see them? Can you tell me the most pertinent fact about square A and square B, apart from the fact they're both squares? Anything? It's nothing to do with Rembrandt this time. <laughs> shall, I, shall I put you out of your misery? Or we could be here all day. They're both the same colour. <coughs> Believe it or not, whatever your eyes are telling you, A and B are the same shade of grey. Now, you could prove that somehow, but they are. Um, I had another one uh, with, with like, you know, lo- lots of squares with lines where it looks like the lines are sloping and in fact they're utterly horizontal. You can get loads of these on the internet. It's one of the great blessings of our age that you can do. But they are actually the same colour. If you were to uh, extract them from that perspective and lay them side by side, they are the same shade of grey. But your eyes tell you no way, don't they? Yeah, yeah that, that has actually worked as an illustration, hasn't it? Thank goodness for that. Anyway, um, <laughs> those squares are the same, um, but they look different according to your perspective, the, the way that you're looking at them, uh, their relationship with the sphere and, and the light, and sorry, not the sphere, the cylinder and all that. These are the same thing. Um, and, and actually, you're going to spend the whole morning thinking about that now. I don't think Rachel believes it at all. She's got an absolute uh, incredulity on her face, which, which is a picture, uh, until I pointed it out. The point about this passage is Jesus is talking about the same event all the way through. He talks about a master returning from a wedding banquet, or he talks about a thief breaking into a house, and, and other images as well. And it is the same event, but they look very different. 
according to whoever's looking at them. The meaning of the parable, therefore, depends an awful lot on not just who you are, but where you are. What is your perspective on the event? If you're a first century Jew, then there are warnings here about what actually happened to the unready people of Israel. Because in AD 71, they were cut to pieces, literally. Um, Their nation was brought to its knees and destroyed. If you're a 21st century person, the meaning is the same, but different, because our situation, our context is different. But the, the message is still there. There is a, um, a time of preparation and waiting and a call to be ready for God when he comes. And there's a whole series of metaphors within this passage. Master, some servants, some dressed and ready, some lamps. There are rewards and punishments, a wedding feast, a home and a burglar. And it's probably the only place you'll see Jesus compared to a burglar. You know, uh, th- th- these are images that really do uh, challenge your um, perception of how the Bible speaks. You know, I read one book called The Wild Gospel, a lady called Alison Morgan. Um, get it, read it. It's a brilliant book. And the whole point of, the, of as the title implies, that it is a wild, radical gospel. And she describes parables not as fables, you know, with a little meaning in them for you to teach children, but as theological hand grenades, which is a violent image in itself. They're lobbed into your world to kind of smash apart your preconceptions. It's the same event, different perspective. And today, uh, if, you, if, you, if you were a liturgical person, if you were a proper Anglican, which, which we're not, um, <laughs> today is called Christ the King. And uh, it's celebrated in Catholic churches and a lot of Anglican churches. It's the, it's the final Sunday of the year, liturgically. We celebrate Christ the King, that culmination of the liturgical year in Christ's glory, his kingship. And when Christ talks about himself, he talks about Christ the servant. We're talking about the same thing, a bit like those two squares. They're both the same thing, but they look very different to us. Christ the king, Christ the servant. And the two things are synonymous to Jesus, but not to us. They sound like very different things. And amidst the perplexing verses here about being beaten, torn to pieces, cast into the fire, and all that sort of stuff, one verse stood out to me as staggering. Um, Polly, I wonder if you can put that one up for me. Verse 37. This one. Blessed are the servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Those who are ready. He says, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them that's Jesus. If we relate that to the coming of Christ, he will serve others as he did when he was alive on earth. And that is a reversal of most people's perception of kingship. Jesus was so radical. And, and when I said what I said two weeks ago, I meant it. Because if we lived according to the radical gospel, the structures of our society could not withstand it. They'd have to change. 
You couldn't have an economy like ours and live the way Jesus really wants us to live, the way it's, the way it's run today. It wouldn't work. Because me lobbing images into your mind to make you jealous of someone else in order for you to go and buy something wouldn't work because you wouldn't be jealous of them. And that's what I meant. So when Jesus says, you know, um, as he does, he goes on in, in this passage, you read on, I've come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. He's not joking. He's come to change radically the way we think. Readiness in this passage is defined as, as choosing to live the waiting life as a faithful servant. Someone who's doing what they, do, what they should do because they want to do it. And because it's the right thing to do. The place and role of waiting in God's plan in readiness for his return. And I want to talk about three things here. If you just flick on to the, the final one. These three things. The role of waiting, the role of serving, and what the word relationship means in this passage. And it show, it, how it unpacks the meaning of what Jesus is talking about. First of all, let's talk about waiting. Because this is all about servants who are waiting for the master to return. We have um, a very uneasy relationship in our culture with waiting, don't we? Um, uh, all husbands in the room, put your hands up. All right, how does it feel when you're about to go out and you're ready and you're sat in the car and someone else is just coming? And how long does that go on for before you actually turn the keys of the engine of the car and start seeing whether it revs properly? Or, you know, there's that kind of uneasy relationship with waiting, isn't there? Um, <coughs> I saw a notice in a, in, a, in a pub the other day, pub restaurant kind of thing. We do not serve fast food. We serve good food as quickly as possible to try and manage this expectation that it's going to be there, perfect, ready, waiting, same quality but instant. Um, and it is always um, an irony to me that the person we get impatient with in a restaurant is a waiter. Since I'm the one waiting, aren't I? That's, that's part of our culture, isn't it? We're always looking at our watches. Um, sometimes I catch the E3 bus, you know, and they've got those little indicators that say when it's coming. And they're usually pretty accurate, actually. You stand there looking at it, trying to make the number go down quicker. <laughs> like, and it's actually not the indicator you're waiting for, it's the bus. I say a watch kettle never boils, which is true despite the fact this is a two-minute event and we still can't wait for the kettle to boil. Perhaps more seriously, um, the credit card culture versus deferred gratification, the whole um, credit crisis that we are still living through was brought about through impatience. Greed manifested as impatience. I want it now. I want it now, and I'll incur the debt, and we'll pay that back rather than wait for the thing that I want. The person who has saved for a thing truly owns it and can enjoy it. A person who has obtained a thing but not paid for it is actually owned by it. And that is a, um, that's an uncomfortable place to be. But there are a number of different perspectives on waiting in this passage. One is where the person is aware and ready in which case it becomes a time of preparation. Um, 
a person, another servant, who's aware but unready, in which case it's a time of defiance. And then almost as bad, a person who is unaware and unready. And that's when the burglar comes. And it's the same event we're talking about. But it's just the perspective of the person waiting. And waiting is central to the life of faith. It's a central part of the culture of God, of the kingdom. Um, If you've got time uh, today, read Hebrews 11. There's one chapter, the great chapter on faith. It talks about the great heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, of how they waited and waited in readiness, in faith, sometimes even to death for what they knew would happen. Waiting and trusting is part of God's plan for us. It's the time where he is at work in us, forming us, changing us, making us grow, acting on our characters and lives. So this story, unlike the rich fool, which is about a story about the stewardship of wealth, this is about the stewardship of time and the role of time in, in, in God's, the way he works on us and shapes us. And every time of waiting has its own purpose, doesn't it? If you're waiting for Christmas, then the time is a time of preparation. Um, Without the preparation, what comes will not be Christmas, will it? It will just be the 25th of December. Um, Waiting for new furniture to arrive is often a time of clearing out and maybe redecorating. Um, Waiting for a bus, um, it's possible to use that time, isn't it, for thinking or reflecting. Waiting for an exam to come around is a time for revision and work. And assuming that you have the ability to do it, i.e. it's not beyond you, your perspective on that is going to be different according to your readiness for it. It's either an opportunity to shine, isn't it? A driving test or an exam or whatever it is, or a time of exposure because you know you're not ready. It's the same event It's your perspective on it that's different. And readiness here is described as having spent the time of waiting well, uh, in faithful preparation and expectation, knowing that one day he will return, but not knowing when it is. We run um, a community play school across the road, Uh, many people here will have put children through it and and know it very, very well. It's a really great bridge between us and the local community. Um, Two weeks ago, they were Ofsted inspected. And they just turned up. They just knock on the door and they're there. And then they spend the whole morning and, and... Anyway, they passed. They got upgraded and a great report and all that kind of stuff. They passed with flying colors and everybody was very happy. I've just compared the coming of Christ with an Ofsted inspection. Did you, did you see what I did there? Um, it, it actually wasn't quite that dramatic, but it feels that way if you're the teacher in the school. Um, the reason they don't announce it is that, of course, they want to come and see what is normal, everyday practice in the school, not how well they can prepare with a week's notice. And that's the difference. The school passed and got upgraded precisely because all the the people who work there love the children, put those things into practice because that's the way to run the school. Not because they've got an Ofsted inspection next week. Because they didn't know they had. 
So when they came in, they found those servants ready, if you like, because what they were doing was their normal way of working and living. And that's what this story is about. You don't know the day or the hour when God will call your account in, as it were. Let me be morbid, but this relates obviously to our lives as well as the second coming of Christ. It, it, it operates on many levels, this story, and you don't know when that will be. So my second point is about serving, what is going on here, and that amazing verse where Jesus says, I will serve you. And I, I think if, um, um, amidst this myriad of images, and it's very hard to pick out from a passage like this one thing, I, I, I'd want to leave you with this. Never underestimate how wrong you can be about your picture of Jesus. Because your picture of Jesus, if it's anything like mine, will usually be semi-religious. It'll usually be conditioned by, um, you are a great God, we worship you, we serve you, and all that kind of stuff, which is not untrue. But Jesus says, I will serve you. I will, you will recline at table. I will wait on you. Another chapter in Luke, um, a dispute arose among the disciples as to which one of them was to be called the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? It is the one who reclines at table. But I am among you as the one who serves. That's just flipped every image upside down. Jesus loves us so much that he calls us friends. And he will serve at table to us, the ones who recline at table. And he says that is the model of living I want to leave you with serving others making them greater than you because that's what I do I make you the one who is served um, there's a, a great book well it's a sort of a great book I found it a rather tedious boring book in the end because it only makes one point which is that we should serve other people and it's called um, The Outward Focus Church Dave Workman you've read it haven't you and there's a, there's a page on it. It took 165 pages to get to this point. Um, but I thought this was, this, was, this was the central bit. It's not a bad book. It's just got one point to make, and it makes it 165 times. Um, he says this. I remember a pastor once telling me that they tried this servant evangelism stuff, this outward focus thing, and it didn't work. I thought, that's like saying we tried this loving people thing, and it didn't work. How does serving people with no strings attached not work? We thought that doing that would increase his church attendance, then he's right, it doesn't work. Because there's a string attached. Servant evangelism isn't about growing a big church. It's just about serving people, especially those who don't yet know Jesus. What's the worst that can happen when you offer someone a free bottle of water? They only like tea? Well, I can live with that. I'm not tapping into any major fear of rejection. If there is grace present, a divine appointment is possible. Or to put it another way, if God doesn't show up here, there's nothing we can do about it. So in times of doubt or fatigue, remember one of my favorite verses. Don't get tired of helping others. You will be rewarded when the time is right. 
if you don't give up, which is Galatians 6 verse 9. Don't say nothing's happening. For one thing, serving others conforms you to the image of Jesus. That's not bad in itself. And that's what this passage is essentially saying. Serving others conforms you to the image of Jesus. No matter what the outcome, whether there's a reward or not. There will be a reward when Jesus comes. Final thing is about relationship. Um, We serve from a position of acceptance and affirmation from God, not as a means of obtaining it. Did that come out clearly? We serve because God loves us, not to make him love us. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. I don't call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I call you friends. Jesus is portrayed here as a number of different things. But the main thrust of the story is to encourage you to know how much he loves you as a friend. Blessed is the servant who serves others because I will serve him. A promise of rich blessing. But the other pictures here are the flip side of it, of course. The thief whose arrival is not welcome, whose arrival spells disaster and distress for the house owner. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, all of a sudden, it's the house owner that is the picture. The person who thinks that the world centers on him in the passage. Who isn't a servant anymore. He's the house owner. This metaphor has just shifted completely. And to him, Jesus is a burglar. He comes to take away what he has. Not to serve him, but to bring him back into that place of servanthood. These are really deadly images. They're really cutting. But they're designed to break up our cosy perception of what Jesus is like. The third picture is a servant who is unfaithful and wicked, who abuses his position and abuses others in his, in his trust. And that's a challenge to us all. Do not serve our flock, whoever that is, but use their position for their own aggrandizement or to feed their egos. Um, as a church leader, that, that is quite a challenge as well, never to do that. Three different pictures of the same thing. Faithful servants, a house owner, and an unfaithful servant. All talking about the same event. So let me come into land and then we'll share um, in communion together. Waiting is a central part of the faith. It's a central part of knowing God. Not getting things straight away. Not seeing things happen immediately. There's, there's a formational thing about it. it you know, the Exodus took 40 years. The Babylonian exile lasted 70 years. The Messiah took thousands of years to come. And has not yet returned. Waiting is central. That period of waiting is a time of serving. That's what it's for. And we do it not because Jesus tells us to, but because we are 
servants, friends of Christ. And the joy that comes from that comes from being who we are, what we are. And finally, the same event will look different depending on our relationship. If we are faithful and ready, it's a joyous day. If not, then the Bible warns us to be ready, to change our lives so that we are serving and conforming to that model of life that Jesus has for us.